At today's 11th hour lecture, we're excited to have with us Nancy Berry to discuss the differences between journalism and creative nonfiction and how we might use the investigative questions of one to frame the other. She'll share the sixth W in nonfiction as well as methods of interrogating your subject matter in order to highlight the often intuitive, surprising, and messy journey behind the inquiry. Nancy K. Berry is a playwright and essayist who teaches creative writing, poetry, and nonfiction at Luther College. Her essays have appeared in Iowa Woman, the Chicago Tribune, and the Baltimore Sun. And in 2010, she transformed her memoir into a one-woman show, Lessons from Cancer College, produced in several theaters in both Iowa and Minnesota. So let's welcome her here today. So today, I'm going to follow up right on the heels of what Carolyn Lieberg talked about yesterday. So we all know she talked about writing what you know, the truism that writers should write what they know. And Carolyn deconstructed that in such a way as to get us to think about things we know that we don't really know we know. So today, I'm going to talk about what it is that writers do when they know that they don't know things, <laughs> when they know they absolutely have to do some research. And I frame this from the point of view of journalists. We all know about the five W's, the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why. And we think of that as indebted to the tradition of good reportage. The difference for creative nonfiction writers lies in our ability to create a narrative arc that describe those five W's coming into focus from the point of view of the inquirer. So all nonfiction work can become, it doesn't have to become, but it can become a kind of quest story. And the quester is you, the writer. And I think one of the most essential things to contribute to that is something I've called the six W, which the lecture will reveal to you. So I've got a few slides here I'm going to move through as we get going on this. Um, if we should write about what we know, what do we do when we need to know more? So I always like to begin lectures with what I call a personal and attitudinal survey. So I want you to just think about yourself as a researcher, as a problem solver. And I want you to think and meditate for a few minutes about what kind of problem solver and researcher you are. So let's take a very ordinary day-to-day -day example of, of, uh, in the modern world. When you acquire a new gadget, how do you learn how to work it? Do you read the instructions before starting? This is just, again, there's no right answer here. There's just each of you to interrogate how it is you work. Do you wait it as you go? Lots of people do that. Do you go online and say, I need to visually watch someone using this thing successfully? Or do you ask the youngest person in the room to do it for you? That's one of my perpetual favorites. There's a whole social history for all of us engaged in this very process. Uh, Carolyn yesterday talked about her book, Younger Sisters. And uh, I'm in that book. I'm quoted in that book. Uh, and the reason I'm quoted is because I was the youngest sister in my birth family. And uh, there were three siblings. They were all obviously older than myself. And how can you hear me? Is this sound good? Yeah, I think it's good. Okay. 
There were three siblings older than myself, and they were all smarter than I was, <laughs> not surprisingly, because they were older than me also, because they're very smart people. So the note that's in Carolyn's book is that a woman who grows up and gets a PhD, sails through school, still thinks of herself as a relatively stupid person. Because really, for a lot of moments in my young life, that's what I was called. <laughs> and this is, that's, I don't mean this as a, a confession in any way. I mean it to say this business of assuming someone else knows more than I do, and all I have to do is find that person, is, is, is a habit we adopt in life for a variety of reasons, sometimes because it's the most efficient thing to do, but it may not be intuitively the best thing we need to do as writers, for reasons that I hope will become plain as I talk a little more about this. So here's one more attitudinal thing. When asked to learn something you don't know much about, do you take a class? Do you phone a friend? Do you go to the library? Ask a reference library. People who are paid and, and in fact have been schooled on the great tradition of, of knowledge and its source work through the ages. Do you just Google it? And when you Google it, how mindful are, are you of the subject headings you're using? Uh, do you pay someone else to do the research and then write your report? <laughs> so uh, I'm reminded of uh, a couple of things about this uh, in this slide. Luther College was part of a, several consortiums of schools that did a survey of students when they enter college and then when they're seniors. So first-year students, it was a survey done by librarians, and they wanted to investigate students' research habits what they know about libraries, how comfortable they are in libraries, what they do when they walk into libraries, and then they wanted to compare that data to what students said when they left. And the most interesting, one of the most interesting stats was the stat that said, when students are faced with a research question, the largest percentage of them will call a parent before they will ask a librarian. I don't know, we have any librarians in the room here? I don't, I, 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 I think that's a pitiful statistic <laughs> uh, insofar as uh, what it says about our culture in relation to knowledge. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just a stat. It's just, but, but it is quite true. Again, the social configurations of how individuals cope with a situation in which they are trying to solve a problem, learn something they don't know, expand their brain, about what they might know. You really do need to interrogate yourself, deconstruct yourself a little bit to figure out your strong suit and your weak suit. If your default is always to consult one kind of source or another. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what we do with these resources. So here's an image that just kind of puts it all at the center of the writer's brain. And I do think it's important when you're doing research on a subject to think about yourself as the writer. The writer, not I, the writer. The writer who needs to know. The writer who's trying to solve a problem. The writer who's trying to answer a question. Because just that little bit of distancing from first person, me, myself, and I, to the writer could be just enough distance to help you 
kind of see the thing as a quest and not your own personal story about what you know or don't know. Um, the three things they have here, I see someone kind of, I realize it may be hard to see. The three circles we've got, in the things that feed into writers' fluent brains. Places, artifacts, I'll talk about that in a minute. People, human beings. People we meet in person, right here, right now. Whatever you know, I need to know, so I'm going to talk to you about it until I feel like you've given me a sense of all the things you know. Sometimes we read about people, obviously, in books. And in fact, this last one here, the printed knowledge bank. And the thing I want us to all think about here is the printed knowledge bank, which you're thinking about books, of course, things that have been printed. You can get them online now. 50 years ago, you actually had to physically hold them in your hand. But I want you to think about printed material as things other writers have learned. Again, not this disembodied book, but the quest narrative of another writer who made his or her own journey to learn this thing. So all these things circulate inside a writer's brain. And the question that I have for all of us is, which resource are you most comfortable with? And I want to tell you a story about, um, I, I'm going to tell you a couple stories about myself as a researcher uh, today. But this first one has to do with my training as a traditional academic PhD. I got a PhD in American literature from the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and I did my dissertation on a great American poet, William Carlos Williams. He was part of that great modern movement of writers who wanted to rethink what we did with poetry and prose at the start of the 20th century. And because I was trained as an academic, and because I had done well in school, and because I really wasn't afraid of librarians, I assumed the first thing that I needed to do when I wrote this dissertation was to, was to read, partly because it was 1982, and the web did not exist as we know it today. So I did the traditional thing that people used to do. I went to the library, I looked at all the cards in the card catalog, I looked at a printed bibliography so I could find all the things that were in print that our library didn't have. And I thought that paper was the way you got ready to know something that you didn't know before. That this was the first thing that you consulted. So I studied poems and I studied all this printed material. And I did, because I wanted to study Williams's process through that poem, I did take a research trip uh, to the manuscripts of that. He wrote a very, he wrote an epic poem called Patterson. Pico poem. It was one of the most significant projects of his, of his life as a writer. Uh, and I wanted to investigate his route through that project, what he, how he conceived of it, what he did. <coughs> so I did, as I said, I did the traditional academic thing. And I did go to libraries. I went to the library where there were manuscripts, because I wanted to physically look at his drafts through that poem. And there's some interesting stories from that, which I can talk about if I have time, but aren't really germane to this. But really, now, 30, 50 years after the fact, here's what I should have done. I should have first gone to East Rutherford, New Jersey, the place where William Carlos Williams spent his writing career. He was a doctor. He's one of those great writers who actually had a whole other gig, which many writers did at the start of the 20th century. T.S. Eliot was a banker, Wallace Stevens was an insurance salesman. Uh, people, people really did not conceive themselves as writers in and of the university at the start of the 20th century. They felt that writing was sort of this 
uh, hobby, a literary journey and pursuit that would not necessarily support them in their daily lives. And William Carlos Williams supported himself as a doctor. He delivered babies, he saw great patients, he wrote little poems on prescription pads. And really, if I had gone there first, I would have had so many better questions as I read this. So the first message that I want to say about the where in the who, what, why, when, and where is never underestimate how much knowledge in your head, in your bones, through your eyes, through your smells, through the visual landscape you can acquire by putting yourself in the setting that's related to your research work. So travel, travel is a way that we physically encounter artifacts. And these, these are, they, they, they look sort of like wallets. They're, they're actually diaries. And they're diaries that are related to a research project I'm going to talk about now for a little bit. But this is, this is one point I want to say about this. And I'll, I'll, explain, I'll explain how this relates to the 6W at the end. One of the best books I have ever read that incorporates research into nonfiction is this book, Family by Ian Frazier. Is there anyone in the audience who's read this book? I recommend it highly. I cannot recommend it enough, really. And I want to read from you. It is a, it is a memoir insofar as it is the story of Ian Frazier's quest to learn of his own family. So it's part autobiography, part memoir, part social history of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century in America because many of his ancestors were religious um, uh, people, they were pastors, teachers. So um, Frazier does this whole pursuit into what religion meant in the 19th century in Ohio and Indiana. The occasion of writing the book was his parents' death. And I'm just going to read you a few paragraphs from this to sort of set up the book. And, 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 and I, I want you to think about how he puts himself in the role of the quester. After my parents had been married for 32 years, my father began to show signs of Alzheimer's disease. His family, my mother, my brother Dave, my sister Susan and Maggie and I, did not believe at first that the symptoms were real. But he was sure he was getting sick. Don't forget, I'm inside this thing, he said. And it turned out he was right. His slow decline seemed as if it might go on indefinitely. But in 1987, he got pneumonia, went into the hospital, and died. My mother was proud that she'd never put him in a nursing home. In pictures taken then, she looks haggard. People said his death would be a blessing for her, but she did not see it that way. I thought she was like a flower someone had cut the stem by accident and set back among the uncut flowers. She died of liver cancer in November 1988, a little more than a year after my father. So after the death of his parents, Ian Frazier inherited what he called the mom box and the dad box. He went to their home in Ohio where they had lived, and he created, he, he collected the archive of his parents. And this is, this is what he decided to do with it. In the end, I did not throw many papers away. He's been describing the various artifacts he's found. I collected all the letters to or from my father and put them with a bunch of other things in a box I labeled the Dad Museum. I did the same for my mother in a box labeled the Mom Museum. The papers that remained filled other boxes. 
I took all the boxes back to New York and went through them during the next several years. I held each item under the light and looked at it. In notebooks, I wrote down what all the items were and what almost every letter said. If the writers were still living, I went to see them. Usually, this meant traveling not to the Midwest, but to one coast or another, where most of my relatives now are. I read books my ancestors had referred to. The Bible. Fleetboard's Life of Christ. Swan's Treaties for Justices of the Peace. And books that referred in passing to them, such as The Captive of War by Solon Hyde, in which the author and great-great-grandfather Benedict are taken prisoners by the Confederates at the Battle of Chickamauga. These books caused me to read lots of others. And this is the thing I want you to pay a special attention to. One summer, I read for a few weeks in the main reading room of the Butler Library at Columbia University. First-person travel accounts, mostly, by people who had gone to Ohio and Indiana frontier in the early 1800s. The reading room is long and lofty, with many study tables and bookshelves along the walls. From the first day, I always sat at the same seat, at the end of a table not far from the door. One afternoon, a young Asian woman sat just behind me at the next table. She had a lot of plastic shopping bags. She worked quietly for a while, and then all of a sudden began to rustle the plastic bags like mad. She would rustle and rustle and rustle, and when I thought she was done, she would rustle a little more. Then she would go back to work, and after a while, start up again. The next morning when I arrived, I saw by the plastic bags that the woman had chosen the same seat. I scanned the vast, nearly empty room, no shortage of places to sit. I thought for a bit and decided I couldn't change a seat I was so used to just because of the little noise. I took my usual chair and read through outbreaks of rustling for five or six hours. I became bored and leaned back in my chair and stretched. I noticed that the bookshelves just to my left held bound volumes of PhD theses abstracts from the University of Iowa, Michigan State, Ohio State. On the lower shelf, I spotted a volume, Stanford University Abstract of Dissertations, 1943-44 to 1946-47. I did not have to get up. I leaned over in my chair, took the book, flipped it open to my father's thesis. A further study of the relationship between ethnocystic acid and oleonotic acid. There must be 25,000 books in that book. Now I take Ian Fraser at his word. And I'll talk, thank you, I'll talk a little bit more about the serendipity that created that moment. But I want you to hold on to this idea that Fraser and his paradigm knew there was lots of stuff to read, lots of stuff to handle and lots of people to talk to. Okay, so I'm going to show how this played out in my own research project um, about a very famous person named Lillian Wall. Anybody know who she is in this room? Few people in the beyond the fields of social work or nursing recognize her name anymore. At the time of her death in 1940, Lillian Wald was a well-known American particularly in New York. She came into that fame through an unlikely source, working with the immigrant poor in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the early decades of the 20th century. 
But her understanding of what those newly arrived citizens needed in terms of health care, education, and social assimilation was revolutionary. In 1922, the New York Times listed her as one of the 12 greatest living Americans. A few years later, the New Yorker magazine published a profile of her entitled, Rampant But Respectable. In 1934, an article in the New York Evening Journal claimed, quote, New York has its patron saint of social reform, and her name is Lillian Wall. When she died in 1940, thousands of people mourned her passing in two very different memorial services. One at the Henry Street Settlement that she founded in 1893 to begin this outreach work to the poor. The other at Carnegie Hall, where the first telegram read was by President Franklin Roosevelt who said, quote, Lillian Wall became one of the outstanding social workers in the country because she had discernment and vision, a heart overflowing with compassion and indefatigable industry. I was privileged to call her friend, end quote. By the end of the 20th century, she had been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Her portrait hangs in the National Gallery. Her life and work have been the subject of three different biographies, a stage play, countless encyclopedia articles on everything from playgrounds to the progressive movement. And contemporary readers, of course, probably if I said this, I should ask here, how many of you have heard of Jane Addams? <laughs> so this is, where, this is where her life sits in the legacy of the social reform movement. She pales in the shadow of Jane Addams, our Midwest Chicago friend. And in fact, a friend of Lillian Walls. They were, they were confidants, they were friends. Some people have posed that they, in fact, were lovers. <coughs> hypothetical uh, consideration in the uh, biography of the two women. There's no doubt that each of them, in their own sphere, was a pioneer of social reform and assimilation. And they did this at a time when the influx of citizens to the United States created a diversity of what it means to be American that the founding fathers, of course, never, never imagined. Now, why would I, an English professor from Luther College in the Midwest, want to learn about her? Well, the answer, actually, is indebted to Fraser's book. And the answer lies, as it often does, with family. Um, intellectual curiosity and a family tie. Lillian Wald is an indirect ancestor of mine. She never married nor had any children, but her nephew, her only sister's son, was my grandfather on my father's side. So in other words, my father was her great nephew. Now, my family was never very boastful about her work or her faith. In, in fact, I can remember only one conversation I had as a child when I was about 12 years old I was in a cabin owned by my uh, father's parents, and I was looking for something to read, and I pulled out two very thick books. She was an author, and she wrote two books about her work. One was called The House on Henry Street, and the other was called Windows on Henry Street. And they were formally inscribed by the author, and I'm looking at these things, and I asked about them, and my grandmother said that all those books were written by Alfred, that's her husband, Alfred's maiden Aunt Lillian. And she said that I probably wouldn't understand them. I was a little too young. But finally, I understood sort of what this W stood for. Now, all my life, my father's, I knew my father's name, was Alfred W. Barry. And my brother was Alfred W. Barry III. 
And in fact, we called my brother Wald, W-A-L-D, and all my life, all I knew about it is most people, when you said it, thought his name was Walt. You know, it's not, it's Walt. And so all of a sudden, the only thing that comes into focus for you as a 12-year-old is, oh, okay, now I understand what this name means. Now, many years later, long after my grandparents' death, I was flabbergasted to learn a very specific signifier about that name, Walt. I mentioned it to a friend here in Iowa City, actually, a friend who was a native New Yorker that I was related to this woman. And because this woman had grown up in New York City, she knew exactly who she was. And she said, oh, yeah, she knew, she knew who she was. And I said, you know, I said, the thing that I never understood or really talked about in my family is that she might have been Jewish. <laughs> and my friend said, probably flabbergasted, of course she was Jewish. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, where do you think that name comes from? And I thought, all of a sudden, this, this, this thing that had, in fact, not surreptitiously hidden from me, maybe sort of embarrassingly hidden from me, that my grandfather's mother, Lillian Wall's sister, was Jewish. And it contradicted everything that I had assumed, because I had always been told that, in fact, the Barry family, the name, comes from a Irish Catholic immigrant who came from Belfast over to Rochester, New York, and became one of the prominent Catholic families uh, in Rochester. So I finally said to my father after this, learning this, I said, Dad, is it true that grandfather's mother was Jewish? If her name was Walt, that certainly would suggest it. And this says everything about my father, really, more than anything else. He paused, he mumbled something like, I suppose so, maybe. And then he made a remark about the fact that our neighbor's car hadn't been moved for almost a month. And did that mean anything? So I decided, in the midst of a sabbatical trip, that I needed to learn more about who Lillian Wald was. And I did it by following this method. I turned it into a quest narrative. And when you turn a research problem into a quest narrative, again, you think of the writer as a third person character who might be puzzled, confused, bewildered, unbelieving, skeptical. You pick it. It's your project. And you don't have to just pick one. And the researcher, or the quester, wants to know the what, or figure out the real who, or interrogate the where, or dig deeper into the when, or reimagine the why. That's what's at stake. Is the when is, is the process by which one writer's brain opens up to the details and the scene and the archive of human history. Let me see here, what's the next slide? I think actually I'm going to go mute here for just a minute. So I want to tell you just a little bit more about that and then turn to questions. To discover more of who Lillian Wald was and how to understand her decision, her decision, what's so remarkable about Lillian Wald is that she grew up in a very uh, respectable middle class, upper middle class Jewish family in Rochester, New York. And as I said, her sister married into a prominent uh, business family. Um, anybody here from Rochester, they, Elwanger and Barry were one of the prominent nursery companies in the 19th century up in uh, Rochester, New York. So, um, but, but the older I got, the question that I had was,
was sort of one of puzzlement. So her life, William Wall's life, wasn't shrouded in secrecy or mystery. It just seemed simply that the generations had moved on past her. And the fact that, my, that her sister, Julia, had married into this prominent Irish Catholic family in Rochester was never so early discussed in my life. Now, it was touched on in biographies of her, but I thought, well, there must be something to it. There must be way more to it. So to discover what that way more to it was, I uh, left Iowa, and I went first to New York City. I wanted to see the original house on Henry Street that Walt used to begin the visiting nurses program, and I was delighted to find it still standing. This, this Henry Street settlement, uh, Henry Street settlement, that's, that, that is still there uh, at that address on Henry Street, the Lower East Side of New York. Uh, in fact, in 2012, the entire operation had expanded well beyond those walls. It was now a daycare center, an arts building, a bustling senior center that on the day I visited showed the daily menu and activity posted in three languages. English, Spanish, and Chinese. And I never would have known that in anything I read about the current Henry Street settlement operation. I guess I would have known that they're serving immigrant populations now that are predominantly Spanish and Chinese, but it was not as real to me as seeing citizens from China, from Mexico, Central America, from mixed in with what we think of as European immigrants all at the senior center. The other remarkable thing about the senior center is the populations were totally divided by gender, by choice. I mean, literally, I walk into a senior center in 2012, and I see all of these different ethnic groups talking and conversing and getting ready for lunch, but there is clearly a room for the women and a room for the men. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was fascinating, really. So in addition, I went to New York City because Lillian Wald actually left us a good archive. So this is one thing you gotta work as a researcher in your quest narrative. You really do have to spend some patient time trying to figure out what is left of this particular story and how can I find it? Um, so I went to Columbia University and the New York Public Library and I, uh, I spent hours hunched over what to me felt like a very old-fashioned machine, microfilm. I had to thread, I mean, I hadn't done this in years, threading reels and reels of microfilm into those readers and trying to read, you know, the, the handwriting that was scrawled through these correspondences. Um, 21st century scholars, you know, can do many things without physically placing themselves inside an archive. But there are vast collections of primary material that have not been digitized. And that's what necessitated my travel to New York. And this is the thing that I want to kind of caution us about, which is that it's possible, as each year moves forward, material of all kinds of usage and history and legacy will be flattened into paperless zip drives that can magically appear on our screens at any moment. But I was really sort of won over to how old-fashioned and physical it felt to immerse myself in the microfilm and then eventually the physical copies of some of these letters. 
to stare for hours at letters written by a woman whose handwriting seemed polite and restrained, but who, from what I could tell, wasn't afraid of anyone or anything. And this is actually, this was an article in the New York Times about this, and um, learning to read handwriting is, 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 is now lost art. I mean, it's true, children do learn script a little bit, but they don't write it very much anymore. <coughs> And it took me uh, the, probably the first full week of my research to learn how to read Lillian Wald's handwriting, let alone the handwriting of all the people who corresponded with her in those letters. Now, you can say, well, it won't be a problem 50 years from now, because 50 years from now, everyone will be reading text full of emails, and they'll all be typescript, and who cares? But surely, 50 years from now, someone will want to know something about the 19th century when these typewriters didn't exist, or at least weren't used, right? So it's a very interesting sort of question to ask yourself, what sources am I pursuing here? And what sources do I have to be patient with to learn to read? Remember, you're the center of the quest narrative here. So a stumbling block, something you don't want to do, interview someone in California, talk to a relative who you never got along with very well in the first place, Put yourself physically in the locale where a story is important to you. All these things that seem to be difficult and tough. As Eleanor Roosevelt said, we must do the thing we think we cannot do. Because, because that is what makes the quester go up hard against what he or she does not know and have a story to tell about surviving the other end of it. Okay, last point that I want to make about uh, in fact, I will tell you the research was a bit of a bust. I thought I would, I, I have hypothesis, we all do. You should always have a hypothesis when you look for things. Why? Because the world is not limitless. Uh, there is a reason to kind of guide research. I always like to think that you have, a, you have a, a crazy hypothesis, you have a reasonable hypothesis, and then you have what to you is a dead certain hypothesis. So in other words, when you go into a research and you're going to start the questionnaire, you should have some idea that you're trying to kind of think about or answer. And mine was this idea about this Irish Catholic uh, successful family helping or not helping this immigrant reform work that Lillian was doing down the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I just wanted to sort of figure out, did they pretend that she was... Uh, did, did they fund any of that work? Did they, did they give her any money? Did they, did they uh, speak about it? And I found that actually the, the families really worked in two different orbits until the end of Julia's life. Julia married Charles Patrick Barry. He died relatively young, not so much for the 20th, uh, 19th or 20th century, but still left her a widow at the age of about 45. And in fact, it was Lillian Wald who supported, in some respects, her sister. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting, again, yeah, you know, you, you have a hypothesis, but you have to read what the sources tell you. But the main thing that happened that I want to sort of describe to you is, is what happened when I went to Rochester. So I did New York City first, and then I went to Rochester. If I had to do it again, I'd go to Rochester first. I'd go to the Rochester Archive first, and I'd get the physical place inside my bones, and then I'd work backward in time. See, that's the interesting thing. You get to the place, and then you work backwards rather than starting with the books and then saying, oh, okay, now i got to go here. Go there first, and then work backwards to what all those print sources can tell you. Um, I'll tell you a little bit just about this. 
We'll go for five more minutes and have questions. It felt strange to move from the grittiness of New York City to the lush river valley of Rochester, New York. Although it's clear that the northern city had fallen on hard times, even before the bankruptcy of Eastman Kodak. In New York City, I was beholden to the subway. In Rochester, on many days, all I needed was my bike. Dogwood trees and cherry blossoms adorned the campus of the University of Rochester, where I went to read in the archives. While on weekends, I would wander through Highland Park and Mount Hope Cemetery, mystified at the many uncanny connections between my own life and the history I was discovering. Would you believe that the captain of the very first boat that brought Norwegians to America in 1825 was a sloop called the Restoration, is buried in the same cemetery as Lillian Walton and her sister? Now, why would this matter to me? Because I teach at a college that was founded by Norwegian immigrants. And for years, I had been teaching students about the sloop Restoration. And there it is, wandering through Mount Oak Cemetery, the grave of that captain. Cemeteries speak in a different language than archives filled with letters and diaries, but each tombstone is a manuscript all its own. And someone like me can wander through them as easily as the sacks of any library. On the day I went to Mount Hope to find Lillian Wald's grave, I had a plot number and a rough map, along with what I have come to call my geographical dyslexia. Truly, even if the heavens were tattooed with signs pointing north, south, east, and west, I could find some method to get lost. But on this day, for some reason, maybe because I spent so much time walking past patience and fortitude, those two lions that sit outside the New York Public Library, I gave myself time and time again to find the Walt family plot. I had walked for over an hour checking the plot number, checking the map, checking the signposts at the intersecting roads in this massive cemetery. It was the first Sunday in May, and the air was unseasonably warm. Within minutes, I had exhausted my water, looking high and low among the stones for a W, for the Star of David, for any signifier that would help me recognize her more out of grave. Discouraged, defeated, I gave up after 90 minutes. But when I got back into my car, Something in me wanted not to speed away, so I drove slowly, very slowly, toward the main road. En route, I saw a gravestone with a massive wreath covering it and stopped dead in the middle of the street when I realized that was Lillian Wald's grave. Her ashes, it's not an actual grave, it's a, it's, a, it's a stone marking her ashes. And her ashes are buried next to her sister, Julia, my grandfather's mother, along with her parents and her brother, Alfred, who died tragically in the early 20s. My grandfather, I realized, was named after him, Alfred Walt Barry. The symbol engraved at the top of her headstone was designed by a Chinese calligrapher that she met during her travels to Asia in 1910. She was really a a great world traveler. And this symbol right here is a symbol that she actually had created for the Henry Street Settlement. It's a little covered by those leaves, but it's a symbol of universal brotherhood, kind of Asian um, uh, uh, symbolic logo. 
I stood for many minutes at the stones, letting all these old ghosts talk to me in any voice they chose. I was mystified by the flowers on Maureen's grave and couldn't for the life of me imagine who placed them there or why. It wasn't the anniversary of her birth or her death or anything else that I could tell. I laughed to think that they had somehow come out from Lillian herself, nudging someone in Rochester to dress up the grave for a family visitor, saying to me in Lillian's spirited voice, keep looking, stop fussing and get to work. There are children needing rescue and thousands without hope. If you tell my story, make it less about me and more about them. The sixth W, wandering, wandering. That thing inside your head that needs patience and fortitude. That's not in the index of any book. It's this thing that sends you on the quest and that you stumble on, just like Ian Frazier stumbled on that dissertation by his own father. Because you are paying attention and you are where the story is unfolding. That's what makes the nonfiction come alive. Thank you. Thank you. Um, questions. We've got a few minutes for questions. Anybody has something they want to pursue a little bit? Oh no, I, I, I'm, I'm the world's slowest writer in the, in, in the world. 
Um, I, you know, I teach at Luther College. I do lots of jobs at Luther College. Um, and, and in fact, really, I'm still working on it. The answer to the question is I'm still working on it. This is a small essay I've written about it. Um, whether it's going to be a book, I don't know. Um, it, 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 I love the research part. I, I, could, I could wander through any gravestone, any cemetery, anything of interest, organizing the notes, settling on a text, that, that is my version of the quest story of the narrative arc. Oh, I, I, I put that off for days, weeks, years even. I'm, I'm probably the worst person to be talking about this in that sense. So here's the thing, you gotta find out what your strong suit is and what your weak suit is as a writer, and you gotta force yourself to cultivate the muscle on your weak suit. Um, yeah, go ahead and then here. Just uh, one question about your search. Did you ever find out if she's Jewish and if so, how? Yes, she is Jewish. Uh, the records in Rochester show that her family, um, they, they actually landed in Ohio. They came over from Prussia. Her parents did, and her, her grandparents and her parents. And they belonged to one of the uh, uh, synagogues uh, in Rochester, New York. Um, so, but, but Lillian herself, who left many texts about her life, you know, she she really she really disassociated herself in some respect from any organized religious movement. So she was raised Jewish. And her most recent biography um, about her talks very much about the ethnicity of this background of, of the Jewish the Jewishness of Lillian Wald in a way, and the way in which it influenced very much how she saw herself as a, a, a reformer and a cultural um, a reformer. So yes, that answer, that answer is yes, but I never really learned the question, the answer to is how comfortable the Jewish family was with the Catholicism that, that Julia, her sister, inherited, or took on. Because Julia and her husband raised their children as Catholic. My grandfather was raised Catholic, and my, so was his only son, who was my father. Question? You know what? I was going to do this. Uh, this this would be the easiest way to do. come up afterwards. Come up afterwards. Sure, sure. My other question was regarding the intriguing study that Luther did of um, when faced with a question that they were trying to get information about or answer, how many the highest percentage of students called a parent. What sorts of information did that concern? Was that like research questions? Yeah. 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 So so what's so, like how. Get my no, no, yeah, sorry. So the question here is about this survey I alluded to very early in the talk that the librarians did. And so it was a survey sort of instigated by the librarians of a consortium of colleges who wanted to find research practices gotcha. of undergraduates early and late. And so early on, undergraduates just don't think of the librarian mm -hmm. as the person who can help them. They would call parents to say, when did the Battle of Hastings yeah. occur? Well, I, I got a paper on the Battle of Hastings. What should I do? Probably the parents <laughs> where, where should I go? How do I start? Related to that, you said it was consortium of colleges, so it was not the student body just set up a particular kind of college. That's right. Well, well these were um, liberal arts schools. Liberal arts schools spread all over the country. 
Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. So the question is, how do you narrow the focus of the quest so it is manageable? And I will say one answer is you give yourself a deadline. <laughs> because it is, it is an artificial construct what the narrow focus is. And, and this, this is a this is part of interrogating or deconstructing or getting comfortable with the way your own mind works. And one of the projects of a writer's life is, without saying, to become aware of his or own, her own path as a writer. What, what you do naturally as a writer, how you work with editors, when readers give you response, how does it float inside your head and what use do you make of it. I call this, in a writing course, I call this writerly maturity. And a good writing course helps writers develop more maturity about themselves as writers, right? How do you work as a writer? So how do you work as a researcher is just as important to understand. And that's why those little silly questions at the beginning was partly my job today is to help you start thinking about yourself as a researcher and to develop some metacognitive understanding of the things you do by default, the things you do without thinking, the things you need to do better. So the business of focus, of getting a focus, has to do with deciding intellectually and also emotionally at what point you have enough and you're ready to pursue one particular hypothesis. And the key thing I try to tell myself and all other researchers is it is somewhat arbitrary. That is to say, you can draw the box around anything. And and you know, William Carlos Williams, back to this researcher where I learned from, William Carlos Williams had this great thing he did when he was writing this by Paul Patterson. Again, this is what I learned about looking at the manuscripts. He kept big manila folders. And he labeled them book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And he just put stuff in them that he thought would go in each book of the five-book poem. And I think that's what we should do as researchers. And the beauty of this is the digital age, if you keep digital notes, Keep the notes in different binders, right? So, so something, something is not lost. It's put aside for another essay. So, so, I, it, so, so what we have to decide is, how urgent is it that I finish this project? And if it's urgent, if there's a deadline looming, then the call to frame the question, just like Anne Lamott talks about in Word by Bird, this one-inch frame, that question, that, that framing question or focus will have to emerge pretty soon. If there's no deadline, you can spend, as I did, two years reading about this stuff. And there's still just the sort of piggly, piggly notes. I mean, my notes are a mess on this stuff. That's the reason to answer Fred's question, why I haven't really gotten the thing into a book yet. So it's so, so so the main answer to this question is it's internal and it's arbitrary and you get to put it wherever you want. Right? There's no there is no one epistemological version of it that you gotta match to the heavens. It's just you drawing them on each frame where you decide it's worth drawing. Yes, sir. Uh, I have an ADE question for you. Uh, were you responsible for the flowers on top of the grave and what did the flowers were? No, I was not responsible for them. It is, in fact, and this is, this is another interesting question, it is the thing that will take me back to Rochester. And, and I, had my, I had my suspicions of who put them there, 
And I did figure out how I might learn. I would go to the cemetery office and I would ask, well, were they delivered by a florist? And if so, then I'd go to the florist and find out who purchased them. Whether or not I have access to that information, I don't know. But this goes to think how arbitrary it is. I decided at this moment in my research, I didn't want to know. I, I mean, it's not like I never want to know. I just wanted it to hang there in my head as a kind of poem. You see, this, this line about we think, you know, research like writing is all about information. What do you know? What do you know? What do you know? And Donna Murray, a great writing teacher and writing coach, wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from Boston, wrote a book, great, great writing textbook called Write to Know. He said, really, it's all about being surprised. It's all about being surprised. What people love is to be surprised. And so that moment when I encountered the grave and there were those flowers, I was shocked. And I wanted to just live with that. And I didn't really want to sort of find its cause in the natural real world. But did you know the symbol? What's that? The symbol. Did you know the symbol? Oh, I knew about the symbol, yeah. I had encountered that at the Henry Street settlement. And so it made sense to you when you saw it? Yeah, the symbol made sense to me. And, and just finding, finding the, the, the other story is finding the grave was very difficult. It's a huge cemetery. And it, the cemeteries, you know, they're, they have streets, but it's just tricky in a way. Other questions? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that a writer tends to assume that other people know more than we do yeah. from the get-go, and that may not be a good thing for a writer to start with. So how do you maneuver around that default setting? Well, so are you saying that, I'm, I'm just confused about your question, are you, did I say, because I can't really always remember, did I say, did I challenge the assumption that other people know more than I do? Or did I say assume that other people know more? Who said assume? Assume that other people know more. Yeah, I want to, I'm glad you brought that back to the top of the thing, because Carolyn's point yesterday was, those of you who heard it, us, you, we should all think we know, we do know more than we think we know. We have to go into these layers and circles and think about north, south, east, west, and think about the kinds of knowledge we have. And so her admonition to us all was to really dig deep to discover what we know. And my admonition is add to that by doing research. And I think the best stance of a researcher and a writer is a kind of humility with confidence. So you, you do sort of assume, I, do you know more about this than I do? Can I talk to you about this? What can you tell me about this? We should never be afraid to ask questions. If you are the kind of person, when faced with a puzzlement, who will never in a million years turn to the person next to you and say, what is that? <laughs> you should practice doing that. <laughs> because writers need to cultivate their inner capacity and bravery to turn to other human beings and say, well, what do you know? Why is that like that? That's a strange thing I ever saw in my life. Have you ever seen anything like that? I mean, in that sense, journalism is great preparation for creative nonfiction. Journalism is great preparation because A, there's a deadline, and B, it's your job to find the story. And, and in a way, writers sometimes kind of get all bound up in their own heads. And so, so I, think, I think my stance as a researcher, as I say here, is any and all, any and all, people to talk to, books to read, places to go, things to say. Last question. What do you think about research for a memoir, if the memoir is really supposed to be how you remember it? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think you have to keep, you have to do both. And I think the key thing to understand is the memories you have, we need to write from them, but we need to pay attention to the world as it existed from other people's point of view. And in order to get that world, we either have to interview people who lived through the thing or read the books that the people in that story were reading. Watch the television shows they were watching. Look at the TV guides that they saw. Look at a red bucket of the kitchen that might have existed in that house in 1950. So, and, and the trick is, and this really is a problem I haven't solved yet for myself as a writer. The trick is we get different voices when we're writing from the core of our own memory versus writing from this, what, we, what we've learned, uh, if you will, through observation and intellectual encounter. So it can be very difficult to put these two voices together inside a memoir or another piece. And the, one, the strategy I found is I put myself as a quester when I went to Lillian Wald's grave. And then that gives me access to sort of just physically an embodiment sort of describe what's going on. And that applies too for when you have that interview with a relative who was alive in your childhood that you never spoke to then, but now you realize you want to talk to. Okay, one more question, then we can stop. Uh, when you visited her grave, did you have an imaginary conversation with her? Yeah, I did. Actually, it was at the end of that essay. I had that quote at the end of the essay was her talking to me, just imagining, well, what would she say? And she would give me a very clear message about, don't worry about don't worry about religion, don't worry about Jewishness, who cares about the money? She was a great reformer. She, she, was, she was so far ahead of her time. I have lots of stuff in the essay that I say about her. She's really a remarkable woman. Okay, we gotta stop. Thank you all very much. Oh, this is yours. So is this a recorder? <laughs>